It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. A prominent Colorado Republican is calling on President Trump to resign. He is Victor Mitchell, former state lawmaker and recent gubernatorial candidate. This morning, Mitchell posted this on Facebook. Given the convictions and guilty pleas, it's time for all Republicans to come together and call on President Trump to resign. Congress should also immediately commence impeachment. And Vic Mitchell is on the phone now. Welcome back to the program. Hi, Ryan. How are you today? I'm doing all right. Help us understand your thinking. I thought yesterday was a tipping point. And, um, you know, I wanted to believe, as all Republicans do, that, you know, this was a witch hunt. There was nothing to any of these allegations, um, just some bubbling and mismanagement and various different claims that were erroneous and politically driven. But after Michael Cohen's admission yesterday and the, and the corroborating evidence of telephone calls and bank statements and other documents, um, there's clearly was a conspiracy uh, to commit uh, both campaign finance violations as well as other possible laws. And that's why we have a system of rule of justice. We, we, as you know, Ryan, we cannot indict, criminally indict a sitting president. So it's up to the Congress uh, to determine if laws were, in fact, serious laws, were in fact, broken, which in this case, it seems somewhat incontrovertible. The evidence is pretty well laid out. You have a, a guilty convict, a guilty plea with the, with the co-conspirator acknowledging the president was directly involved. You're speaking here of, uh, of it's Michael time for the Republican. Yes, yeah, so speaking of Michael Cohen. So I think the time has come that we have as Republicans for the betterment of the nation uh, to do the right thing. I mean, uh, we should call for an immediate resignation of the president and there should be hearings. Now, again, of course, the way our, our system of governance works is the House of Representatives would impeach. But that doesn't mean the president's removed. If he was, in fact, voted to be impeached, then it would go to the uh, Senate for the actual trial. And then he would have to be convicted in the Senate. So this is not convicting him, but clearly the evidence seems somewhat overwhelming that serious felonies were committed by this president. And it's time to acknowledge that we're dealing with an individual in all likelihood that's basically corrupt. Let me say that the order of things in your Facebook post is first you ask him to resign. Then you say Congress should also immediately commence impeachment. Is it a bit premature to be asking the president to resign at this point? Uh, should there be more you know, digging I into the story? So for the sake of, no, there should be more dignity and civility when his lawyer of more than 10 years who's in his intimate circle is making payments worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. There's a criminal conspiracy going on with phony shell companies, phony invoices being created, tape phone conversations. Um, again, I mean, the evidence, and now the man stood in front of a judge yesterday, acknowledged his guilt, implicated directly uh, the president. Yes, I think the president should resign. I don't think the president will resign. He's never shown any inclination to do the right thing. So I think that at this point, we have no other choice but to ask our Republican friends. And I've been a lifelong Republican since I was 18 years old. I'm just ashamed that we are no longer the party of law and order if we don't do the right thing here. I mean, this is so clear, cut and dry that he should be immediately impeached if he refuses to resign. Let me say that the country he, will be so much better off. All right. Let me let me get a word in edgewise here. He, he's he, the president t- tweeting this morning. Michael Cohen pled guilty to two counts of campaign finance violations that are not a crime. 
President Obama had a big campaign finance violation. It, it was easily settled, though in the Cohen case, we are talking about a crime. Uh, you're taking a lot of blowback on Facebook for this. Some people calling you a turncoat. Someone who voted for you, apparently, in the gubernatorial primary, saying very disappointed in someone I voted for. Uh, clearly, Republicans not united on this front. What, what makes you different? I, I understand. I love my ref- fellow Republicans. Uh, I appreciate so much the 30 percent of the electorate that voted for me. Uh, but, you know, I believe that party, that country uh, and the rule of law should come ahead of party politics. And it pains me. I, I, I did not want this outcome. And I am not casting any guilt on Trump related to any of the Russia investigation, because I think that still needs to play out. We need to get the Mueller report. So I've never weighed in on that, and I don't think it's fair for anybody to weigh in on that until the facts come out. But the facts now have come out with his personal attorney pleading guilty to federal crimes, or actually, I'm sorry, there were state crimes that he's, I believe he's going to serve about five years in prison for these very serious offenses that he's directly implicated the president with proof, with incontrovertible evidence. I mean, we have no other choice but to try to just stand up and do the right thing, even though that most of my Republican friends are very upset with me about this. I'll say that Jeff Hayes, the chairman of the Colorado GOP, says, I don't have a comment on what Victor Mitchell has to say. You'll have to call Vic, which we've done here. Thanks for your time. God bless. Thank you for your time. Businessman, former state lawmaker, and recent Republican gubernatorial candidate Victor Mitchell speaking with me this morning. He has called on President Trump to resign. For more than a year now, we've conducted an experiment to see if people with really different politics can find common ground or at the very least get out of their bubbles. We call this breaking bread because we meet over a meal or in today's case, over Colorado peaches. I want to thank you, Sandy, for coming today. I know it was kind of a long drive for you and traffic and whatnot. This is Adam Brock of Westminster, who voted for Hillary Clinton in the 2016 election, welcoming Sandy Russell, a Trump supporter who lives outside Colorado Springs in Palmer Lake. This is a space that I put a lot of my love into and that many, many, many other people put their love into. We're standing in a market in Denver with fresh produce and other groceries, and it's attached to a farm smack dab in the middle of the city. We are surrounded by foundries and interstate, the Purina Pet Chow plant. This green oasis is called the Grow House. Adam helped start it. And no, it's not a marijuana grow. We sell our own leafy greens that we grow, but we also get a lot of other food from all over the place because where we are is really far from a grocery store. A produce place being in a, in a neighborhood, you know, like this, because you're really usually looking for, I don't know, a, a big uh, box store. You're looking for King Supers or something like that. And you come in here, you're like, wow. We grab a few peaches for later and head towards a thriving greenhouse. So that's our, our commercial hydroponic farm where we grow about a thousand heads of lettuce every single week. And that's what we sell all over the state uh, to restaurants and grocery stores. This isn't the first time Adam and Sandy have met one-on-one. Earlier this year, Sandy made stew for Adam at her home in Palmer Lake. They talked a lot about the military. Sandy's husband and her three kids are all in the armed forces. And there were some touchy moments, like when Adam said he'd had very little contact with the military before meeting Sandy. The reason I thought it would be helpful for us to have this conversation Mm -hmm. is that you are in a bubble. Mm -hmm. I'm certainly in a bubble. 
And I'm sitting here appalled that you have such limited knowledge about the military. Adam responded that despite his ignorance, he and people in his circle were contributing to the country in their own way, a way Sandy might not know about. People who are really active in supporting their communities, in making a difference in their own neighborhood, who are running for local office, who are um, growing food and sharing it with their neighbors and friends. And it has a very unique worldview from both the military and what you might see like in the mainstream liberal media. And that's when Adam invited Sandy to see the Grow House, which brings us to today's visit. I'm really impressed that our communities are all about doing a positive thing. Military is uh, positive in that they are working to protect our country from uh, people who would want to do us harm. His community is making life better for the people who live in that community and giving them more opportunities to be employed, giving them more opportunities to be proud of their community and have an establishment where it's really easy to get really good, nutritious food. Yeah, it's definitely been an eye-opener for me, and and I'm really grateful to learn more about the community that Sandy's a part of and, in general, the kind of culture of the armed forces. I think uh, I won't be as quick in the future to have a knee-jerk reaction against the military now that I've heard some of the stories you've shared of what it can bring to the people who serve. You know, we find community wherever we can, and I think both of us have done a good job of creating it. So a meeting of the minds, a kumbaya moment. Then Adam had a question about something that had obviously been on his mind. You know, this neighborhood is a neighborhood that has a lot of immigrants from Latin America, mostly Mexico and and Guatemala and other places. And some of those immigrants are undocumented. They might have been here for 20, 30 years, but they're people who have contributed a lot to our economy. They pay taxes. They're people who I've formed really close relationships with. You know, I don't want to assume that you're 100% on board with President Trump's immigration policies, but I would imagine that in general you support them. So how do you feel about, you know, this organization serving people who don't have papers? Well, the word that I think we're uh, skirting around is illegal. And so uh, when we say undocumented, we're saying illegal. So the thing that really is a stickler for me, and I'm right there with President Trump, is we need to take care of illegal. Adam, on the question of immigration, I think of, of immigrants who are legally in the country and who sort of did it right, you know, mm-hmm. dotted their I's, crossed their T's. I actually think you have someone in your family from Korea yes. who's, who's like that. Correct. And who says, hey, I did it right. I filled out the paperwork. I, I waited the years. Why should someone be able to, as many have put it, get in line in front of me? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think our country has... And, and any country has a past that's filled with inconsistencies and um, doing things that when we look back in hindsight are like, yeah, maybe that's not the way it should have been done. And it's also a country that practices grace and practices compassion and forgiveness. And so I can understand that perspective of people who are crossing the border now, which I think there's a lot less of than there used to be five, ten years ago, of saying, well, you know, we need to figure out a better way to do this. But for people who have been here, and again, for people who have been here since they were too young to speak, and this is all they know, I just don't see the argument that uh, because they quote-unquote cut in line, that they should be sent back to a life 
that they know nothing about, maybe even a language that they don't even speak. It just seems cruel and, and inhumane and, and really not even good for our own community or economy. The wall. I want your thoughts. Mm-hmm. The wall. Do you hope he builds it, Sandy? Absolutely. I wouldn't want another community to go through what this community is going through. And the wall is just something to keep you safe. And it's something to keep you even. Level playing field for coming across the border legally. And that's what President Trump is about. My understanding of just the practical engineering of the wall is that it's not practical, no matter how much money you throw at it, to literally build the kind of wall that so many of the people who voted for Trump are really excited about. I think if the wall is a euphemism for increased border security, sure, I could see an argument for that. But I think not only is literally building a wall bad policy and overly expensive, I don't think it will even work. I think anybody who builds a wall, someone else will just find a way over it if they have enough reason to. So ultimately, I think the answer is to work with countries like Mexico and Guatemala to end the reasons why they're wanting to migrate to the United States in the first place because of challenging economic uh, policies that are partly the United States is to blame for. So if we can make those economies great, then I'm sure people would be happy to stay in those places. What just happened in Chicago, uh, oh, I'd say like just three, four weeks ago? I think you're speaking of the murder rate there. Yeah, yeah well, the, uh, the carnage that went on there and goes on frequently. If we can't control that in our United States of America, where are we going to get the money? Where are we going to get the resources to go outside of our borders and teach people to do what we're not doing in our own country? I don't think it's actually a, you know putting Americans, sending them to these countries. I think it's actually about economic policy. And, and personally, an area that you might be surprised uh, that I might agree with Trump on is changing things like NAFTA, right? Because mm-hmm. I think you know NAFTA has created a lot of opportunity for Mexicans who already have opportunity. But I think it's actually made the lives of a lot of everyday, ordinary Mexicans a lot harder um, Mm -hmm. through the kind of free trade economic policies. So, you know, I don't know if I would want to change it in the way that Trump wants to change it. But I do think that if we have different economic policies toward countries that encourage their own self-sufficiency rather than globalization at the expense of everything else... I think we would see less people wanting to cross the border in the first place. When it comes to immigration policy, a major sticking point is what to do about the people already here. On that question, Sandy doesn't take a hard line. We need to get our politicians, we need to get our policymakers, our people all together and come up with a pathway, a way by which these people whom have proven themselves to be good citizens, to be contributing citizens, be given some special attention so that they can meet that legal status. Why do you feel that those who are already here and established ought to be able to stay? Well, I'm up because of what Adam said that these people have come over here perhaps by no choice of their own. Perhaps it was a family coming, bringing children with them, and then the children grew up, and the children had children, and then they became a part of this community. You know, I think that puts you maybe a bit to the left of President Trump, who I think has taken a harder line on those who are here now, that there are people being deported, for instance, who might fit that. 
perhaps those people that are being deported, uh, I, I don't know their individual situation, but you're speaking about community, and I can't get in his head, but I think Trump is speaking about individuals whom we know are illegal, and they have not done anything taken the first step to become legal citizens. Well, I mean, I can say that uh, many of the people who I have known for years now and are the people, like you're saying, who have maybe been here since they were kids um, are now really in fear of getting deported because the policies have really changed under this administration. And, you know, they might be what you call illegal um, and therefore subject to deportation under President Trump. But they haven't done anything wrong other than maybe coming across the border when they were too young to know any better. So what's prohibiting them from taking some steps to become legal? I don't know that there's any way for them to do that right now. I mean, there's DACA, and several of the people I know are part of that program. But that is a program that now is under threat, and so they're afraid of being deported. Everybody I know who doesn't uh, have documentation would do anything they can to be able to become legal. But I don't think there's any way for them to do that. But they have been here for, you said, for years. This is their community. So why has there not been some attempt, like, go back and then come back legally? They know how to do that. So why is the whole community not taking steps over the years, 10, 15, 20 years, to become legal or to start the path to citizenship? Well, I think a lot of people are trying to do that. I I mean, my understanding is that the way our court system works is that it's very, very slow to get that path. It can take seven to ten years. So if they're trying to move back to the country they came from, again, some of these people came here when they were one, two, three years old. Mm -hmm. It's moving to a whole new country for maybe seven to ten years just to come back to the place that's the only place they know as home. I hear some agreement um, between you two about... Uh, the idea that those who might be here and have established a life ought to have some way of kind of getting right with the law and perhaps staying. What do you think it is that prevents that from happening in Congress, right? This is an issue that has dogged the Bush administration, the Obama administration, and now the Trump administration. Bush did not want to lose his job. Trump doesn't want to lose his job. They're going to play to their base. So that's interesting, Sandy, because, I mean, I think, you know, you're part of Trump's base, right? And you're someone who has a view that seems to be that there's some overlap with you and me, right? So I'm really encouraged to hear that. And I would love folks like you who do support Trump and most of his policies to be more outspoken about, look, we support you as a president and we want you to find a pathway towards being legal, as you call it, for, mm-hmm. for these millions of people. Because I think if more people like you mm-hmm. spoke up, then maybe the politics would change. Well, let me just remind you that not all of us are in that deplorable uh, basket. So we do this have the some from individual. During the we have some individual uh, thinking along the way, but there are some things with Trump that I'm not necessarily agree with. But given my conservative side and given my other side which is somewhat place in between, I go more toward the conservative. On the subject of President Trump, Sandy added that in her mind, he's not responsible for divisions in the country. She says he's just a symbol of those divisions and that the left is just as entrenched. 
I don't think there's anything that Trump could do that would move you to support Trump. Perhaps I'm wrong. No, that's probably right. <laughs> yeah? Yeah, and it, I, I agree, Sandy, that you know Trump is not the cause of the divisions in our country. I think he does a really good job of exploiting the divisions in our country and firing up the people who feel like they're on one side of that line mm-hmm. and actually firing up the people who feel like they're on the other side of that line in different ways. Mm-hmm. So I think he's taken those divisions that already existed and kind of turbocharged them, but he's not the cause. Sandy then had this observation about her time with Adam. We're supposed to be so different, but I'm learning so much from him, and I don't know if he's learning from me or not, but I just find that so interesting. So why is it that we have gotten to the point where we can't, you have to be here, you have to be here, you can't be in the middle like this peach? She points to the center of the table where some Colorado peaches are sitting. And yes, I know this series, Bridging the Political Divide, is called breaking bread, but it was prime peach time. So we skipped the bread, loaded up with paper towels, and bit in. That is the taste of summer to me. Mmm. Mmm. Delicious. A ripe peach in summer is, I think, something anybody can enjoy. Mmm. Where was this grown? I think this was grown on the western slope. We didn't grow these peaches, but they're local. Immigration and peaches. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, guys. Yeah, thanks for coming all the way up here, Sandy. It was wonderful, and I want my husband to kind of walk through here and see all this, too. Yeah. This is really incredible. Sandy Russell of Palmer Lake, a Trump supporter, and Adam Brock of Westminster, who supported Hillary Clinton in the 2016 election. We met them earlier this month for our series Breaking Bread. How much power do prison gangs have beyond prison walls? A video interrogation of an inmate reaffirms suspicions that a prison gang was behind the murder of Tom Clements. He was head of corrections in Colorado. Clements was gunned down at his home in Monument five years ago. The killer was a parolee who died in a shootout with police. And he was a member of that prison gang, the 211 crew. In the video interrogation obtained by KDVR, the inmate says a gang leader ordered the hit on Clements. To be clear, no gang member has been charged. Georgia Leap studies gangs and is a policy advisor to Los Angeles on gang violence. She says the 211 crew was founded by a man named Benjamin Davis, who has since died in prison. There is sort of a founding story about the 211 crew that in 1995, Benjamin Davis was uh, being detained in Colorado, in Denver County Jail. And there he was assaulted and beaten by a large group of black inmates, um, supposedly, allegedly with a sock full of soap bars. And he was beaten so badly that his jaw was broken. And he sort of assembled a group of white inmates for protection and spread the rumor that they were an actual prison gang when they were not. They were a a small clique or a small group. And eventually the rumor became reality when more and more white inmates came to Benjamin Davis and said, hey, we want the protection. We want to join up. And this grew into what is now known as the 211 crew. You mentioned that that had its roots in a jail as opposed to a prison. So let's be clear that those uh, environments, jails, um, are, I suppose, just as ripe for this as prisons themselves. 
Well, I would actually say that jails are much more ripe for this in the short run. County jails traditionally are much more violent, much more unstable atmosphere where inmates do seek protection. Uh, And then once gangs or crews are organized, they do sort of spread to or consolidate within state prison systems. I know that's been very much the case in California, although prison gangs themselves become consolidated and almost corporate in the prison setting. Almost corporate? What do you mean by that? They're highly organized. Um, I originally have started spending had started spending a lot of time with street gangs which are often, you know, disorganized crime. But once inside the confines of prison walls, let's be honest, there's a lot of time and a lot of ability to organize, I don't want to say effectively, but well. And so these gangs have to be operating within prison walls, able to exist within prison regulations while knowing how to circumvent them, and also able ultimately to communicate with individuals on the outside. We'll talk more about that, uh, the role of a prison gang outside of a prison or a jail, for that matter, in a bit. But a a little more about the 211 crew. What does the name come from, 211? The name comes from California Penal Code uh, 211, which is for robbery. And I found it kind of strange that they use the California Penal Code, but let's be blunt. There's a romance about California and its gangs and its prison gangs as well. So that's what 211 comes from. And, you know, in a lot of correspondence, they used California Penal Code numbers as a means to communicate. So they would refer to 187, which is California Penal Code for murder as well. But that is where the numbers came from. Based on the story of the founding of the 211 crew, it sounds like some, perhaps all, prison gangs have a racial element to them. Is that true? Absolutely, yes, although there's some wiggle room on this. But they absolutely have a racial element, and in particular, uh, Latino and Mexican gangs sort of started this, and they are incredibly well organized inside of prison walls. Um, African-American gangs report different degrees of organization. In the California state prisons, they're often not as well organized as the Mexican and Latino gangs. But in other state prisons, they are extremely well organized. Um, But you will find that prison gangs break down very clearly along racial lines and also involve a lot of racial hatred. And the 211 crew remains a white gang. In fact, I I think even white supremacist, doesn't it? Absolutely, yes. They do claim an association with the Aryan Brotherhood, and it they self-identify as a white supremacist gang. Uh, to what extent does a prison gang, in what we imagine is a very fortified environment, uh, able to communicate with the outside, and perhaps, in the case of Colorado's prison's chief, to organize an outside action, perhaps a killing? And again, that's speculation at this point. Correct. This, these are all allegations, and I do want to offer that caveat. But I must say, prison walls are remarkably porous, no matter how high the security, no matter even if we are talking about a supermax institution. And this gives cold comfort to the public, but I think we have to be very, very honest about this. Communication does travel both ways. Drugs travel into prison. Any and all form of 
orders for hits can be made from prison that can occur on the street. And sometimes, sadly, it's found that prison guards aid and abet these kinds of communications. I'm also very well aware that on a weekly basis, calls are made from contraband cell phones. I know several individuals who are inmates on death row who obtained cell phones while they were on death row. Now, they were eventually found to have the cell phones and they were put into solitary confinement. But what I can tell you is they got those cell phones in their hands on death row in a high-security prison in the state of California. I think what uh, you described for us at the beginning was that prison gangs serve a need for inmates, uh, the need for protection in the case of Benjamin Davis, who founded the 211 crew after an assault. Is that the extent of what prison gangs do for its members? No, I think there's much more. I think that there's kind of a nuance in terms of the needs that they serve. There is a need for association. There is a need for kind of what are called cellies or or associates or people that you feel bonded with within the prison walls. Um, these individuals also do receive contraband. They receive drugs. They receive cell phones. They receive food. They receive any and all sorts of things within the prison walls. And, you know, prison is a desperately, desperately unhappy and uncomfortable place. Their rehabilitation does not go on inside of prison walls. And this is I'm using this word advisedly. They also supply the sort of recreational activities, and that's a strange way to put it, but that prisoners often need. So it's protection, it's association, drugs, communication, you name it, they offer it there behind the prison walls. I mean, saying rehabilitation is not going on behind prison walls, that's painting with a rather broad brush, isn't it? I think corrections officials in this state would disagree. Yes, and I do have to also say one of the tragedies with Mr. Clements was that he was a very progressive leader who did believe that there needed to be rehabilitation, that both the physical and mental health needs of prisoners needed to be attended to. Colorado and Missouri, I might add, where interestingly enough Mr. Clements came from, those are two states that have an enviable record in trying to institute some rehabilitative practices. I'm sad to say that California is attempting to at this point, but we have also in the past sadly lagged behind. And I think that's why I make – I have that kind of emphatic uh, attitude about it. I still think that we are woefully falling short of any kind of rehabilitation in a systematic way in our United States prison system in, in the different states. Given the communication that you said could occur uh, between an inmate who is in prison and others on the outside, um, is it logical, is it plausible to you that a hit, a, m- a murder, could be orchestrated from members of a gang on the inside uh, with perhaps former members on the outside? Absolutely, yes. In fact, there are extensive accounts of this going on in California with the Mexican mafia. There's a an excellent book, The Black Hand by Chris Blatchford, that details how hits were ordered from inside prison walls on uh, individuals on the outside. And certainly the Mexican mafia and other uh, Mexican gangs have had that reach in the state of California. That's what I'm the most familiar with, but it's also been documented in other places. So it's not only plausible, it has occurred. Thanks so much for speaking with us. 
Thanks for having me. And as I said, it is very sad what happened to Mr. Clements. I still think of this. It was a tragic occurrence. Georgia Leap is an anthropologist at the Luskin School of Public Policy at UCLA. She studies prison gangs. We spoke a few years back to get perspective on the 211 crew. That prison gang may be linked to the murder of Colorado's former corrections chief, Tom Clements. Gang members have not been charged, and that has led to some frustration among officials investigating the crime. Now the story of an Air Force sergeant who died trying to save others during a firefight in Afghanistan. Today, Technical Sergeant John Chapman receives the Medal of Honor, posthumously. It's the country's top award for bravery. Chapman is the first airman to receive the medal since the Vietnam War. His mother, Terry Chapman, attended the awards ceremony in Washington, D.C. She lives in Colorado Springs, and we spoke a few weeks back. Hi, Terry. Hi. Thank you for inviting me to speak on your show. Absolutely. Thanks for being willing to talk. Tell us about the mission your son was on back in 2002 when he died. Well, as you know, he was an Air Force combat controller. Their main job is to, um, like, for this particular mission, to call in air support and direct strikes on the enemy. Their mission was supposed to go to the top of Takugar to set up an observation post. This is a mountain. Yes. And as they were coming in with their helicopter... They noticed signs of life. They were about to abort the mission when they came under heavy fire. Some rocket grenades hit the the helicopter and damaged the hydraulics. And at the same time, it caused Neil Roberts to fall out of the helicopter. And I think the Neil that you refer to was a a seal. Was a seal. Is that right? Yeah. Um, The helicopter at that time did not have enough power to lift to go back for Neil. So they did a controlled crash landing several miles away. Uh, that's when Johnny called in air support to, first of all, to look for Neil while they were down there, and then to fire on the enemy that was nearing the crash where they had landed. Uh, he then called in a second chopper, and after they landed, they went up to the mountain looking for, for Neil. Um, they landed under heavy fire. It was like fire from three directions. So John assaulted the first machine gun and, and took out two of the enemy. The gunfire was increasing and a couple of the men were were badly wounded. So then John went after a larger machine gun in another bunker so that the team could pull the wounded to safety. Um, the team saw John get hit, and he wasn't moving, so they assumed he was dead. So they continued to remove the wounded off the mountain. Actually, he was unconscious and severely wounded, but he came to and continued fighting several of the enemy for another hour or more. And then at that time... An Army Ranger quick reaction team was coming in, and he saw that they were also under heavy fire, and they were about to be shot down by rocket grenades. So he came out of his cover in order that he could lay down cover fire for the chopper. And it was while, while in this time that he was fatally shot. And so your son uh, died rescuing, trying to save the lives of others. Yes. Did that surprise you? That No. It, no. No, Johnny always put others before himself from a time he was just a little bitty guy. Give me an example of that from when he was a kid. Well, once in kindergarten, um, some a girl was picking on a, a, a shy little boy, and Johnny stepped in and made her stop. And then through the years, he continued to 
encouraged this boy to join in things because he was very, very shy. And, you know, that was one of the things he did. Um, we had a neighbor who had a handicapped daughter who was about maybe 10 years older than John, and her only capabilities were to do, she could use her mouth to, color, to pick up a crayon and color. And he would always take time to sit down and color with her before he'd even go out with his friends. He'd make his friends wait for him until he got done with her. Uh, but so- there were several several stories that we, we learned about after Johnny was killed that the people told us and wrote letters, and I, I was surprised. But, I mean, not really surprised that Johnny did it, but just surprised that there were so many. So many, and he was so consistent yes. about it. Your son was 36 when he died. He spent 17 years in the military. And I understand when he first joined, you convinced him not to take on a combat role, but I guess he eventually, right. eventually changed his mind. Yeah, he got he he was first stationed at, at Lowry up in Aurora, and for the first four years or so, he sat behind a desk doing computer stuff. I don't know if it was with satellite communications or exactly what it was, but he finally said, Mom, I can't take this anymore. I can't sit behind a desk. I have to do something. So then he switched his career field and did the they call it the pipeline, which is like 18 months or more of, of tr- training to become a combat controller. How'd you so feel about that? Proud. Well, I was okay with it. You know, he, he told us, he told the whole family that how dangerous of a job it was, but it was something he truly wanted, and he felt, felt like he, wanted, he needed to do it. And he was really good at it. Are you a worrier? Um, at times, not always, no. Mm-hmm. I mean, he, he would come and tell me several different things that would happen, like well, in some of the training things where the parachute didn't open and he had to resort to the second chute. But, oh, you know, he managed to get them open. That happened about two or three times. So that, you know, a mom to hear that was not too good news. No, I can't imagine. Uh, it took many years for your son to be recognized. Again, he died in 2002. You knew this medal was a possibility, how has it been to wait for so long for the recognition? Hectic. Uh, I was finally getting to the point, and I figured, well, it's never going to happen, and I was getting myself to accept that fact. But then all of a sudden things clicked and it came through. How do you think the trip to Washington will be? I think it will be good. I'll get to see a lot of his teammates, and I'll get to see John's, John's widow, Val, and the girls. So that will be good. And my other... my. Uh, two of my other kids are going. I, I, I've spoken over the years with, with many Gold Star moms like yourself, and uh, I have found there to be a rather close-knit community among parents who have lost children in war. Have you found mm-hmm. that community? Yes, I belong to the Pikes Peak chapter of the Gold Star Mothers, and there are well, it's probably at least 30-some of us in that group. And it's 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 a group that you can go to and... Discuss your feelings. You know, other people don't understand. They think that after several years have passed that everything should be fine and dandy, but there are, there are days like I could wake up in the morning and it's the happiest feeling ever, and then all of a sudden it's like a brick wall hits you and you break down. Thankfully, it's usually only for about a few minutes, but it, it, you know, it takes you by surprise. So, and I, I think it's especially because no parent expects their children to die before them. Thank you for being with us. Oh, you're quite welcome. Terry Chapman's son, Technical Sergeant John Chapman, died in combat in Afghanistan in 2002. Today, he was posthumously recognized with the Medal of Honor. Chapman is the first airman to receive it since the Vietnam War. His mother, Terry, who lives in Colorado Springs, attended the ceremony in D.C. 
Across the Denver area, there's something in front of homes that you may have seen and wondered about. They often look like birdhouses, but there are books inside. They're called Little Free Libraries, and it turns out Denver is a hot spot for them. The man who started Little Free Libraries, Todd Bowl, even designated Denver a city of distinction. Welcome to the program. Hello, thank you very much. How did the idea of Little Free Libraries come to you? It, well, it was just a uh, when my mother passed. You know, I, I couldn't uh, I couldn't pray enough when she was dying. I couldn't cry enough. I couldn't scream enough. And so, at her funeral, I gave away a little necklace that said "June Bowl, a Dancing Spirit, nineteen twenty seven through." And it was based on an old Sioux Indian saying that nobody really ever passes until all they've touched are gone. And so, what it was was a dance. Uh, of my mother to the community. So I put up this uh, little schoolhouse, one-room schoolhouse that uh, uh, kind of mimicked where she taught as a, uh, as a teacher. Right, she was a teacher. Yeah, and then I put in books that she'd, that she'd had over the years that she'd passed back and forth with family. And I felt it was kind of a gift to the community to celebrate that spirit of who my mother was. Hmm. So in some ways, do you see each little free library as a version of your mother continuing. Dancing. Dancing. Absolutely. Um, I see each little library as like one of my kids, and I see each one of them as a dance of my mother around the planet. You call people who put up little free libraries stewards, and uh, there are more than 500 of them in Metro Denver, I guess making it one of the most active regions in the country. Absolutely. Denver's been absolutely wonderful. Uh, they've embraced it as art. They've embraced it as community. They've embraced it as uh, ways of giving back to the community, social justice. They've done all kinds of things, and I've watched them for years, and we've been absolutely impressed what happens. And uh, we know that the 500 you have today in a couple of years will be 1,000. So we, we feel that it's becoming a part of the fabric of Denver, and that is really exciting to us. A thought crossed my mind as I was walking through that neighborhood that uh, the people who lived there likely had no problem accessing books. You know, there's the public library uh, where I was walking. They were probably well-heeled enough to buy a book if they needed one. Like, what what role do these play? What do you see as the, the mission of little free libraries? Well, uh, I believe, one, that everybody has a right to read. And that everybody should read. And, and our long-term goal is in 2035 that we write a book that's entitled We All Read Well Together, The History of the Grassroots Literacy Movement. And what we do is write a chapter every year, and Denver is a big part of that chapter. And the idea is that we don't have enough resources really to you know, make the difference we need to make totally. So neighborhoods step up and help educate and help with literacy of their own community. And do you find that these little free libraries appear in all kinds of neighborhoods, uh, in more upper middle class ones? Like what, what do you know as you look at their distribution? Um, little free libraries, about 85 percent uh, women. Women mothers are huh. the key drivers of little free library. And what happens is they listen to it on a public radio station like this or read it in the newspaper and upper class, higher social economic neighborhoods start. And then what happens is it starts to work its way through the community, starts ending up at the apartment, the trailer home, you know, the schools. And so what happens, it starts out more social economic, higher levels, mm -hmm. and then it works its way throughout the community to all levels. And you've seen that in 
communities around the world, I guess. Detroit, Cleveland, Minneapolis, St. Paul, Los Angeles, El Paso, Phoenix, New Orleans, on and on. Is it data-driven? Like, are you looking at ways in which data can tell you about where they are and where they need to be? Well, we have a world map. And the world map is somebody uh, signs up with us, gets a a sign, uh, their specific number, and they go up on the world map and we know where they are. And then you can look at the world map anywhere you are going or traveling and go visit a little free library. We know that they need to be really everywhere. And we find out at higher social economic neighborhoods, it's more about building community and connecting community. Mm. And the lower social economic neighborhoods is more about literacy and building the reading. Um, I opened one little free library, and there is quite the hodgepodge, a biography of the late jazz singer Betty Carter, an adventurer's guide to Hawaii. There was a children's picture book. Do these, though, in some way become a final resting place for books that people want to get rid of? What happens is people often, um, they're book lovers, and book lovers tell us all the time that books are my heart and soul. They define my humanity. They define who I am. I can't live without books. And they tell us all the time, this is a natural extension of who they are. And so the Little Free Library becomes really a part of them. They start out by doing just what you said as a resting ground for the something they want to get rid of. Yeah. And it turns into the most intimate experience in the community because what happens is you're sharing of your heart and who you are. And what happens is people start sharing their best and most important books to reflect themselves to the community. And for those unfamiliar with what these look like, um, they they are kind of schoolhouse-like or birdhouse-like. But really, everyone who erects one, does it a little differently. What are some of the, I don't know, like wackier designs you've seen? Well, everything from rocket ships to, you know, uh, we see things that are out of old bathtubs. We see them on old, old microwaves. We see them on docks, Old microwaves? Old microwaves, old refrigerators, uh, old computers. You know, people turn almost anything they can imagine into a little free library. What is your favorite story about someone encountering a little free library? Well, probably my favorite story was uh, I got approached by uh, the former governor, Jim Doyle of Wisconsin. He tapped me on the shoulder. This is where you're from, right? Right, from Wisconsin. And he said, you know, Todd, he said, I have to tell you, my wife and I love Little Free Libraries. And he said, and I want to tell you what's going on in America. He said, that's not who we are right now. He says, this is not we as Americans. We're not this divisive. We're not this polarized. He said, Little Free Libraries is more about who we are. He said, we reach across the aisle. We reach across the street. We pick each other up. We help each other. We don't care where they're from. We want to make their life better. He said, Little Free Library is more of a reflection of what Americans really are. And so uh, that touched me deeply. And one more is that a man came up to me and he said after a presentation, little free libraries, I understand them. It's like air conditioning. And I said, well, you know, what do you mean? Yeah, how so? Yeah. And he said, well, when he's a kid, he's 60-something. He, uh, the parents and his grandparents read on the deck or on their porch. They played in the streets with the kids and the sidewalks and, you know, the fields. And then they got air conditioning. They went in the house. They shut the windows. They shut the doors. They turned on the TV. And he said, and it was all downhill from then. And the digital divide began. And he said, but it's been over 50 years. And with Little Free Library, we're talking again. They're they're connecting again with the neighborhood around them. It does strike me as kind of beautifully analog, you know, Little Free Libraries in a digital world. And it's outside, for that matter. Are you a steward? 
Do you have a little free library in, in front of your home, Todd? Oh, several. I'm the first one. You know, you're the first one. Yes, yeah. <laughs> is that 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 one is still standing? Yeah, it's still standing. Oh, and no, I cool. also have the thousandth one that I put to my that is honoring my dad when he passed. And in that one, I have a music box. You open it up, and it plays to dream the impossible dream, which is kind of cool. You're very poetic. I think we're all passionate at heart, and I think that all of us have that. Uh, passion inside that we just want to come out. And one of the things about the Little Free Library, it just is the dance of the community. And you find out how many people are really caring and really caring about their neighbors. Todd Bold speaking with us last year as he designated Denver a city of distinction for having more than 500 Little Free Libraries. Colorado Matters executive producer is Carl Bielek. Andrea Dukakis produces Breaking Bread. I'm Ryan Warner, CPR News.